It's where we come into his presence and more of his glory. And I really sense, at least in my life, I've been a Christian for 43, 44 years now, and I'm coming to a place I've never been in before. I'm beginning to know God and Christ at a level that I've never known him before. And here we are at this stage of life and careers, and I'm more invigorated than I've ever been before. I'm physically tired, but inside I'm more invigorated, I'm more excited, and it's because the life of Christ is becoming more real in me as a person in me. And I just want to whet our appetites, those of you that are, that are watching online. Um, we, there's a distinction between, between God's presence in us and God's presence in, in our presence, his manifest presence. Um, and, and people in the Bible that I've studied, for instance, Moses, what turned, changed Moses' life was a physical encounter, an encounter with, with God through the burning bush. Now, God didn't come and stand in his form, but God's presence was in that bush. His voice was in that bush. And, and Moses' encounter with him changed him. And, and Moses needed that in order to go back into Egypt and do the things that he needed to do. And then you have um, uh, King David obviously had some kind of encounter with God because he couldn't write the things in the Psalms that he did and he un- undoubtedly had those experiences with him out, out in the wilderness uh, when he was taking care of his father's sheep. And then you have the prophets. The different prophets had some kinds of encounter with God. God was more than a principle to them. God was more than just a doctrine to them. God was the supreme being that they would hear his voice. They would, he would speak to them somehow. And, and God's voice to them, whether it was audible or it was internal or not, was, was enough to communicate to them his authority for them to go do the things that God was calling them to do. And some of them were very difficult things. Jeremiah was called to, to go to a place and to, to, to speak to a people knowing they weren't going to listen to him. And he suffered because of that. Uh, even Ezekiel was told, you know, you're going to preach to them, but they're not going to listen to you. So, I mean, it's hard enough to preach when you're asleep. People are asleep. When, when God's told you they're not going to listen to you, that makes it even harder. So you have to know you've heard from God. And, 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 and what changes our relationship with God, and I believe what the church needs more of today is, is an encounter with the, true, with the living God. And that's what will change you. And, and, and so we're going to talk a little bit tonight uh, about what God's done to make that available to us. And then we're going to spend some time, we're going to learn a little bit about how to press in. And I'm by no means an expert. I'm learning this as I go. And then we're going to spend some time doing it. And that's where it gets uncomfortable, but it's only as you have to confront the things that are uncomfortable that, that, you'll, be, that you'll begin to grow. So, we've been taught the Word, but it's the experience of God that makes that Word come alive to us. It's, it's, it's what, when, when somebody asks you, why are you a Christian? You can't explain why, but you, they can't talk you out of it. Because it's, He's so real to you that it doesn't matter whether every atheist lines up and tells you you're a fool, you know him because he's an experience that you've had. Just like I know my wife because I'm in her presence. I have an experience with her every day. So, all right. So we're going to move a little bit into this. Let's pray. That would probably help at this point. Father, we come here tonight, and the people that come here tonight, they come here regularly, 
on a Wednesday night. And in this season, with all the other issues in their life, they've chosen to come here, and those that are online, they've chosen to take this time out of this very busy holiday season, especially this close to Christmas, and they've come to, to spend this time to listen and to hear words that would encourage them and strengthen them. And Father, we can't do this on our own. But I believe with all my heart you're calling us as believers, as those that have a hunger and a desire to know you better. You're calling us closer to you. You're calling us to draw in and press into you as a living God and to Christ as our Savior, to press into you. And to do that, we need the guidance and we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Only he can whet our appetites. Only he can encourage us that this can be done. Only he can help us and strengthen us. And so, Holy Spirit, we just offer you ourselves to you tonight, that you would work in our hearts and you would bring us and draw us. You whet our appetites for more and more and more of him because your word says there's no limit to how much of him we can have. Paul talks about the unsearchable, unsearchable riches, unsearchable riches that are in Christ. And Father, your church, as you know better than we do, your church needs something to bring it alive. Your church needs something to energize us and to set us out with a passion for you, that passion that will carry us through the season of our nation, the season of the church, the season of our lives, so that we will finish what you've sent us here to do. So that when we talk to our neighbors, when we talk to the, the waitress, when we talk to others, others around us will sense this something about us and, and will be will be drawn, will be drawn to you. The, and they won't know why. They don't, what, don't know what it is, but there'll be something about us because we've been in the presence. We've experienced the presence of the true and the living God. We can't do this in our strength, but we can come asking you. We can come desiring it of you. We can come pressing in and, and calling upon you to meet us and to draw us ever closer to you. And Father, I know that once we get a taste, once we get a taste, we'll never be satisfied with where we've been before. And I believe that this is what revival is, Father. And we just thank you and we invite the Spirit of God in tonight to help us, to strengthen us, and to enable us and to draw us as only as only he can. All right, amen. So, as I said, the word is a person. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word is living. It's active. It's more powerful than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce between, but it's a living, if a living word. And in John 6.63, Jesus said, my words are spirit and they were life. Jesus kept drawing people to him. He called people to into a relationship with him. And in the, the, he used the word, but he called them into a relationship with him. So that's what I want to challenge us tonight with. So the question is, how do we do this? You're, you're here, as I said when I was praying. You're here tonight because there's, there's something in you that wants more of God, something in you that, that makes you committed to come here on a Wednesday night when, when, when you could be doing so many other things. So there's already something in you that wants something. So let's, we're going to look together. At how can we do this? How can we, how can we press in? Well, first of all, we have to, it helps to look at from God's side what God has already done. Because we can't do anything with God that he hasn't already made a way to do. We can't make God do anything. 
In fact, there's a, there's a song that says, that, you know, God can do anything he wants, and he'll do whatever he wants to do. All right, so, first of all, we understand that he lives in us through his spirit. That's how, what makes you born again. But Hebrews 10, if you have that, can you put that up? Hebrews 10. So this is the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews was written to Jewish believers who were struggling because they were being tempted. They'd been, they had been driven out of Jerusalem and the mother church because of persecution, and they scattered in different parts. And because they were separated from the mother church, they, were not, they didn't have internet, they didn't have social media, they couldn't do live streaming with the local church. So, so that because they didn't have those things available, they're out there on their own, and they're vulnerable to, 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 to heresies coming in. They're vulnerable to attacks of the enemy to try to draw them out, away from the purity of the gospel. And this is what was happening. They were being tempted to go back under the old practices of the law or mix them together with faith in Christ. And so this letter is written to them to, to, to compare, starts out by comparing the, um, the different things that they were taught into the Old Testament, comparing angels, then it compared the Mosaic, the high priest, the Mosaic uh, covenant, and then it comes down, beginning in chapter 9, it begins to talk about this new covenant and the difference in this new covenant, and then it compares this new covenant, what they were experienced that they had through the tabernacle, and Gordon's taught so well uh, several times here on the tabernacle. So it comes down to this. They said, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter by the blood of Jesus. Well, before this, he talks about Jesus as, as, a, as a high priest who has... Could you have verses before that? I guess that's what I gave you. Let me see if I can read them to you. Therefore, this is where, yeah. Therefore, my brethren, have, oh, this is right, excuse me. I don't know where my head is tonight. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness by the blood of Jesus. Go ahead. By a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Now, in the, in, in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle that God had instructed Moses to build, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they, God had to reintroduce himself to the people that he had a covenant with because they'd lived 430 years in a very pagan society. And so that represents about 10 generations in biblical terms. So they've lost touch with what their heritage was. And so they've come out and God has to instill in them a number of things. One of the things God wants to instill in them is who he is, that he loves them, he's a God of covenant, but also that he's a holy God. So God establishes this method, system of worship consisting of the tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness. And I don't know how much detail Gordon went into, but basically you have a tent that has two rooms in it. There was the holy, the holy place, which is where the priests would gather and they would eat of the showbread, which represented being in the presence of God. But then there was an inner room where the Ark of the Covenant was. Remember the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark? That was the Ark of the Covenant and in that, in that ark, and I'm not going to go into all the details of it, in that ark were some, were, was, part, was the word of God that God had written with his finger on stone. Pieces of that was, was uh, some of the manna that God had given them in the wilderness. And then there was uh, the rod, the, the, the rod that had budded, which represents resurrection. So these were in it, and they're holy, and it was covered on top by what's called the mercy seat. And in that room, that room was lit up 
by the physical presence of God called the Shekinah glory of God. And so God had manifest himself. So the, part of the significance of this was God was now going to physically dwell in the midst of his people, but nobody could go and see him. Why? Because God is absolutely holy. And because of the sin that all of us had, that they had, sin is judged in the presence of absolute holiness. And wherever sin is, whatever it is, it's judged and it has to die. So anybody going in there that was not pure, and of course none of them were, they would die in the presence of God. So what God had to do is clothe himself in there with things which symbolically represented, in essence, Christ, symbolically represented the, the, uh, the, his, the, the sacrifice that would allow people to go in. So the only one that could go in there was the high priest and only on the high holy day. And even then he had to wear, take his outer robes off. He had to go through certain ritual and he had to bring blood of a sacrifice in there and sprinkle it on the, on the mercy seat so he could go into that presence. All of that was to signify to the people God's holiness and yet he was there. So what separated that inner room called the Holy of Holies from the outer room, which is where the priests would come and they would eat of the showbread, which was the bread that represented fellowship with each other and fellowship with with God, but they couldn't go in there, was, was a curtain called the veil. Now when Solomon reconstructed this in, in the temple and everything was much grander and much more beautiful because the tabernacle in the wilderness was, was, was made of, of materials that they came out of Egypt with. Solomon built this and the Holy of Holies was separated by a veil that the, the archaeologists believe was about six inches thick, woven six inches thick. And when Jesus was crucified and when he died and he released his spirit, I think it's Matthew's account, says that veil was torn from the top to the bottom. And I believe there's a significance. And when the Bible tells us from the top to the bottom, there's a significance to that. And I believe what that represents is no man could possibly do that because they would have had to do it from the bottom. So I just envision that as two angels took one side of it and the other side and they just ripped it open. That's the veil that he's talking about. But the veil that I'm talking about in the, in, the, in, the, um, in the temple is what separated that holy of holies from the holy place. This veil is the veil of Christ's flesh. When he died on that cross and the price was paid for sin, what's the veil that separated God's presence from us was torn and was opened up. So that now it says that by a new and living way, which he consecrated us through the veil referring symbolically back to the tabernacle and the temple, but the writer goes on to explain, but this real veil was his flesh. Next verse. Having a high priest over the household of God, that's of course Christ, let us draw near, that's what we're talking about tonight, with a true heart, that means a sincere heart, and full assurance of faith, that's how we enter. We don't enter because of our good works. We don't enter because of anything we've said or done or believed. It requires faith in the high priest that we said in the prior, prior verse. So it's faith in the work that Christ did which allows us to enter into this presence. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil consciousness, what that word literally means is from a guilty conscience. So if your conscience is troubling you, if you're feeling guilty, then it's hard to enter into 
the presence of a holy God because we just know we're not worthy to be in his presence. But that's what the blood of Christ cleanses us from and he gives us his righteousness, which is why this is done by faith. But the point here is God is telling us that he did all of this so that we could draw near, near to him, to his presence, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from a guilty conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, which most likely refers to baptism. Next verse. Is that it? Is that what I gave you? Yep, okay. So, we're to draw in in full assurance of faith. Um, another verse tells us to come boldly to the throne of grace. That's also in there. The word boldly means totally open, nothing hidden. You don't have to hide anything from God. If you're mad at him, you, you can tell him you're mad at him. He's not going to be shocked and fall off the throne. I had somebody years ago came to me and they were just struggling in their prayer life. They were just struggling to really feel like they were communicating with God and there had been some disappointments and things and I said, Here, here's what I want you to do. This is going to sound strange to you. I want you to go out in a field somewhere where nobody's going to hear you and I want you to just be as mad as you can at God. I want you to pour it out. Tell him what you think of him. Tell him everything, whatever's in you. I want you to just pour it out. I want you to unclog the pipes. And I said, you're not going to be stricken with lightning because God knows what's in there already. You just don't know what's in there. And you have to release it and let it out. So we're to come with boldness, with confidence. God wants us to have confidence before him. And he's not just talking here about confidence when we come and ask God to please heal this person, please do that. It's confidence to come into his presence, to experience his presence This is one of the reasons Christ died. He died not just so you could sins would be forgiven. He died not just so you could go to heaven. He died so your sins could be forgiven. God could give you his righteousness and then you could come into the presence of a holy God with boldness and openness because he's a father that loves you. This is how much he wants your presence. This is how much he wants your presence. I got a text from one of our my, one of my sons, who's got uh, the, the uh, young son that's about almost a year old now. And it was just, it was so heartfelt. He was, he was so excited. He said, Dad, I was, I was putting him to, to bed last night. And he said, he looked up at me and grabbed my face. And he said, Dada. And he just wouldn't stop. He just kept saying, Dada, Dada, Dada. And his eyes were looking at me. And he said, I fell apart. I melted. He said, my son was crying out to me. And I wrote him back. I said, and that's how God sees you. And that's how God is your father. He longs for those moments when you cry out to him and you reach out to him and you press into that relationship with him. Every morning when you wake up, God's waiting, waiting. See, our prayer life can get so dull and such work because we don't know who we're talking to. We're just saying prayers and hoping that they're going to work. But if you're having a living conversation with somebody, somebody that loves you more than you'll ever begin to love yourself, somebody whose presence, his presence, Moses was in his presence for 40 days and 40 nights and ate no food and drank no water. Now, he didn't go up on that mountain and think, I got to do a 40-day fast. A 40-day fast. I don't believe he ever had that in mind. I believe he got so in God's presence 
eating was something he didn't even think of doing. Now, you can go without eating for 40 days, but you can't go out with drinking water for 40 days. So what sustained him? It was the presence. He was in the presence of life himself. He was in the presence of absolute life, absolute hope, absolute love. And to get a taste of that, and I want you to begin to get a taste of it, because once you do, you can get hooked. And it's the only thing in all of creation that you're supposed to get hooked on. To get hooked on the presence of God. To get hooked on the presence of God. And he's longing for that. He's longing for that. This is why Jesus came. I know he paid for his sins, but he just paid for your sins. So he said, all right, you guys are paid for. Go back and do what you're going to do. He paid for your sins so you could come to him, a holy God. And he could experience. See, he wants to experience you too. And he wants you to experience, experience him. I've told this story many times before, but I like to sell this story. A number of years ago, we were all, our family was on vacation in, in Florida together for Disney World. And, and, and Emma, who's now in college, uh, she's always had been tied in, in a close relationship with her grandmother. And uh, I come out early and got my coffee and... Um, and Emma comes up to me and she says, is, she calls her Nama, is Nama awake yet? I, I said, not yet. She said, because this was, because she was in the same house with her now. It's not like I had to call her up and find out if she available. She's right here. And she, she was standing at the door and she said, could I go in? I said, yeah, sure. So she, Emma went in. I don't know how old she must have been. But, but she stood, she stood until Anita woke up. She stood right next to her bed looking at her. So that the moment Anita opened her eyes, there was Emma. Because she couldn't wait. She couldn't wait for her grandmother to open her eyes and recognize her. And I kind of imagine that every morning that's where God is. He's just waiting for you. Just think of what he paid so that you can open your eyes and just immediately be aware of his presence. he's closer to you than you can imagine. I mean, his presence is. The the veil that separates our flesh from eternity is so thin. It's so thin. And he's right there, just waiting. So why, why is it so hard? Because there's a second veil. And he couldn't get rid of that veil. That veil is our own heart. That veil is our own sense of guilt. That veil is also something else. And I want to read something, if I can find it here, from a book that if you've, ever, if you've never read it, I want to encourage you to read it. I had it this morning. And this is by A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God. If you've never read that book, you need to read it. It will, it will stir you up. And he's talking about this. He said, um, he said, I've risked the tedium of quotation. He quotes some people that were so in love with God that almost consumed them. Um, I show you that what I've set out to say, that God is so vastly wonderful, so utterly and completely delightful, that he can, without anything other than himself, meet and overflow the deepest demands of our total nature, mysterious and deep as that nature is. Hearts that are fit to break with love for the Godhead are those that have been in the presence and have looked with an open eye on the majesty 
of deity. He said, and yet the ability to penetrate and pulse push through the sensitive living experience of the Holy Spirit is a privilege that's open to every child. But there's a veil that has to be removed. With the veil removed by the tearing of Jesus' flesh, with nothing on God's side to prevent us from entering in, why do we wait? Why do we consent to abide all our days just outside of the presence of God and never enter in to look upon God? We hear the bridegrooms, he can say this much better than I can, we hear the bridegroom say, let me see your countenance, let me hear your voice, for sweet is your voice and your countenance comely. That's Solomon of Solomon. We sense that the call is for us, but still we fail to draw near, and the years pass and grow old and tired in the outer courts of the tabernacle. What hinders us? The answer usually given is simply that we're cold, but that doesn't explain all the facts. There's something more serious than the coldness of the heart, something more back of that coldness and and maybe the cause of its existence. What is it? It's the presence of a veil over our hearts. That veil was not taken away as the first one was, but it remains there still shutting out the light and hiding the face of God from us. It's the veil of our fleshly, fallen nature living on, unjudged within us, uncrucified, unrepudiated. It's the close woven veil of self-life, which has never been truly acknowledged, of which has been secretly ashamed, and which for these reasons we've never been brought to the judgment of the cross. It's not a beautiful thing. And he talks about it's the, it's the self-sins, the sins of self-righteousness, self-pity, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-admiration, admiration, self-love, and a host of others. And this is the veil on our side that has to be torn open in order for us to experience the presence of God in that fullness. And the wonderful thing about God's grace is he has placed within us someone that's well able to do that if we give him permission, and that's the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, Andrew Murray wrote a book called Absolute Surrender, which was a very scary title when I first saw it, until I began to read it. And he talks about this complete surrender, which is what's required, is not something we can do ourselves. And then I had this image. Even Jesus couldn't nail himself to the cross. He had to submit and let somebody do that to him. And so it's a process of of allowing the Holy Spirit to come into our life and to search our life. And he'll do it through experiences. And that's what I experience. I may get in a situation and all of a sudden it's, well, why did you react that way? Well, it was self. Why why are you reacting this way? Get up in the morning and you're feeling bad. Why are you reacting this way, John? Well, okay, I'm feeling sorry for my self. That's because that part of myself hasn't died yet. So I've got to bring that part of myself to the cross and surrender it and say, I have no right to feel sorry for myself because I died with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And if I've got Christ living in me, I've got no reason to feel sorry for myself. And so I've got to make the choice to put that to death, to lay that down. Greed. All these things are ultimately rooted in self. And one of the statements I've read that really has changed my life, and that's in a, and I'm just rattling on tonight, that's in a devotion by uh, uh, Oswald Chambers called My Utmost for His Highest, or the other way around, I get him backwards, where he's, just, he's talking about this. And he, he says this, and this is no condemnation of this, because I've been there this week. Discouragement is nothing more than disenchanted self-love. 
when we're discouraged, we're discouraged about ourselves. I'm falling short. I'm not where I think I could be. I'm not doing this. This hasn't happened to me yet. And somewhere at the root of all discouragement is me. And that's a form of self-love. And it's disenchanted. I'm expecting something of myself. In fact, in there he says, just part of the discouragement can be where, you're, dis- where you're, dis- you're discouraged about your own devotion to Christ. I'm not where I should be. That's still based on self. And all of this forms a veil, forms something that holds us, that holds us back. So I want you to see tonight, from God's side, everything that would keep us from being able to come into God's presence was ripped open on the cross. So from God's side, there's nothing holding us back. What holds us back is moi, is me. It's my hesitation to enter in because I'm still, I don't know if I'm good enough today. I don't know if I'm measuring up. That's still based on me. And that's a hard thing to recognize because it's so ingrained in our thinking. Our culture, our society, and so much, so much of church has always been, it's based on what you do. You're not praying enough. You're not giving enough. You know, you're not doing anything enough. And, and, and with, oh, you have this sense of you're, not, you're, you're, you're falling short. You're not measuring up enough. Then that robs you of the confidence to come to God, even though he said, come boldly with confidence into my presence because I've opened the gate. So I just, I believe that we're in a season now. I know I am, and I'm, I talk to other people, and I find that God's doing this in them. We're in a season where the Holy Spirit is trying to shine his light on this because he wants to set us free so that we can come freely and boldly into the presence of God. Because when we begin to get people in a congregation that begin to experience the presence of God, then his presence begins to be felt by other people in here, and then miracles start happening. When God's presence is there, things can happen. Things that people have been struggling with, their whole life can be turned around in a moment. Addictions can flee. and pre- Nothing can stand in the presence of God that's not holy, that's not of Him. And I believe God's calling us, calling us to that place. And the other thing that holds us back is just our flesh. And when we did this before, when we did this um, a, a, a month or so ago, what we found is that, and I'll, this is a good example, for as long as I've been in this church, when we hold prayer meetings, and I'll be as honest as I can, it's one of the dullest experiences I've ever had. <laughs> you know, usually what we do, the model we have is one of us stands up here, and we lead it in prayer, and everybody's very respectful. I'm sure everybody's trying to pray, but there's no life. There's no life in our prayers. You go into other countries, and you say prayer, people are on their feet, and I mean, boom, they start praying, because they're, they're used to doing that. And we're so self-conscious. And what happens is we don't have confidence we can do it. And as I explained to you last time, and I just, it was really clear to me at the end, because I had us do an exercise, and I'm going to do it again tonight. And the exercise is designed to push us to the limits of our flesh when it comes to prayer. Because when you get to that limit and you keep going, what you begin to do is you begin to put your flesh aside, your understanding aside, and now you begin to allow your spirit and God's spirit to begin to come forth and to speak forth in prayer what the spirit is inspiring in your heart. And what stands between that and, uh, between that and in our normal experience is our comfort zones, our flesh. So... Most of the time, if you ask people to pray, they're going to run out of things to pray in a while. So if they pray in tongues, they'll go into tongues. And that's perfectly right because we're speaking mysteries to God. But, but there's something about pressing your flesh. 
pushing your flesh. And this is, it's pressing in. There's a, this, in fact, my son pointed this out to me a while ago from somebody who's listening to. It's interesting, Jesus, in, jo- in Matthew chapter 7, I think they have it back there, Jesus talks about these three things. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. So there are three things that Jesus is saying to do. Are they just the same thing said three different ways? I don't think so. First of all, ask. Ask is passive. You ask. Now, the word ask there actually, the Greek word for, there are different words for ask. The Greek word there means more than just, God, would you please? It is a heartfelt cry, really, and it, 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 is, it is, is almost a demand. The word implies a demand. So ask, but it's passive. You can be sitting in your car or somewhere, ask, and you will receive. Isn't it interesting? There's no qualification there. Ask and you will receive. We're not going to go on after this, but, but Jesus goes on to explain you can trust God when you ask him because he uses the example of a good father. If a son asks his father for a loaf of bread, he's not going to give him a rock, stone. If he asks him for a fish, he's not going to give him a certain. In other words, you can trust that God's not going to play games with what you ask for. And so ask. He, everyone that asks, receive. Now he says, he who seeks finds. Well, seeking is more active. It's going after something. It's looking for something. Something that, you're, you, that almost implies that it's lost or you can't see it or, or you can't, haven't found it. Jesus uses that in a, one of the simple parables talking about the value of, of knowing him. He said it's like, it's like a woman that's lost, lost her, I forgot what it is, pearl or something like that. She's lost a jewelry and she goes around, she won't stop until she finds She's seeking it. So she's actively looking for something that she desires and she wants. So God will do things like that. Sometimes, you know, I asked God one time, you know, as a lawyer, the, the statute books are all, well, not so much anymore probably, they're laid out rationally. So you can, there's a system by which you can find, find them, find what the, a, a statute says. But the Bible's all mixed up that way. In fact, there's some, there's some places... There's a place in Proverbs where in one verse God says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. And the next verse tells him, you ask a fool, answer a fool according to his folly. So what does that mean? That means God's d- desiring us to press into him and ask, what does it mean? Because out of that, a relationships form. Asking questions. In, in, in classrooms, students are encouraged to ask questions because that's how, that's how they learn. So God wants us to ask questions. So some things, and so I asked him one time, I said, I asked him a question. I said, how come, how come you laid, didn't lay this out so the answers are so easy to find? You've got to really dig to find them. And he said, that's why. Because in the process of digging to find the answer, it heightens your desire to press in. And we're living in a society, we're so used, we're impatient. If something doesn't, especially now with these devices, you know, if you, if you can't get an answer on Google in, you know, in, in three seconds, we're going to go on to something else. And they do studies on how long people will look at a page until they get what they want. They don't get what they want. They'll go and find something else because there's so many other choices. So we've gone from being what I was raised as a push-button generation to an instant gratification. Everything's just instant. And we know a generation that's raised now. And if they don't get it instantly, they don't have any patience for it. So, and yet they're so frustrated so God is, 
God has set things up in the way he relates to us that requires us to press in. If we want more, and it was another example of this is what's typically called the Sermon on the Mount. It is, but if you listen, if you read the context there, Jesus is saying a whole bunch of things to people, and then he withdraws up on the mountain, and his disciples come up, and they begin to ask him what it means. And he would do this on a number of occasions. So Jesus would say things, he would speak in parables, because and, 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 they ask him, why do you speak in parables? And he says, he basically says, he says, so that, so that, because they that don't have it will ask. In other words, it's been, what, I'm getting all mixed up. Okay. Basically he's saying, it's been given to you, and the reason it's been given to you is because you've come to find out what the answer is. So those that don't, those that listen to the parable and say, that's a nice message, okay, and they don't have a desire to go further, they don't get any more. But those that want to know more, they would come up to him and he would give them more understanding. And in the process of that, he said, don't cast your pearls before swine. And not that he was calling the rest of them swine, but he was saying, God doesn't just decide who I'm going to give this to and who I'm not going to give. It's based on the desire. It's the pressing in. And this is what I sense God's calling us, calling us to do. So seek, not, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. And the next thing, if you can put that back up there, Matthew 7, Knock, you had it, knock, and it will be opened unto you. Well, what's that? That, 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 that signifies an obstacle. So ask passive. I'm just sitting there, Lord, please do this for me. And there's some things, especially when you're a new believer, God will answer those prayers. But as you get older, I don't know you found, I found prayers don't get answered quite as easily and as fast sometimes as they used to. Why? Does that mean God has disfavor with me? He's bored with me? No, he's expecting more. In fact, I had a situation not long ago, where it was earlier this year, where I had been believing God for something, and I was confident, and all of a sudden, when I was believing God, the opposite happened. And I got frustrated. I got mad at God. So I was doing everything I know to do. And with the Lord, when I calmed down and began to ask him what he said to me, he says, because if you don't get, an, if you don't get a quick result you get impatient, and you just shut down. He said, I want to teach you patience. I want to teach you to exercise faith, and faith requires you to continue to believe when you don't see the answer, or you may think you see something even opposite. He said, the reason that situation didn't turn around is you gave up too quickly, because what happened disappointed you. And so God will teach you out of these situations if you go back to him and you begin to ask him. And this develops a real relationship with somebody where you're communicating with him and he's answering you. So, knock and it shall be open for, to you implies that there's, to me, implies that there's an obstacle there. That you're looking for something and now that it looks like there's a closed door. And it's very tempting, especially religion tends to teach you, well, if God closes a door, that means he doesn't want you to go in it. No, he may want you to knock. He may want you to press in because he may want you to exercise your faith. He may want you to, he may want you to desire something more than you're afraid. Because sometimes we don't desire because we're afraid we're going to be disappointed. I don't want to do this because I, I don't want to be disappointed. And so out of fear, we hold back. And out of fear, therefore, we begin to build walls around us. And this is what God's doing with me. He's, 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 shy, he's showing me the walls I built in my thinking walls I build in my life 
that he wants to tear down because they're keeping me captive from a fullness of what God wants for me and through me. And sometimes I say, Lord, you know what age I am? You know, it's a little late. To, you know, and that timing is in God's hands. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to take just a little bit of time right now. And I just want to whet your appetite. Wonder to whet your appetite. And we're going to begin to just try to press in. So I want, I want you to take, we'll take a little bit of time right now. And you can get up and wander around. And we're going to just, I want you to talk to God about your day. What your day was like. If you had a frustrations of this day. If you had, you know, God's not looking for you to recite some long prayer. He wants you to talk to him about the issues of your life. About what your day was like. What, did you have a, a wonderful things happen? Then talk to him about those things. Begin to develop a dialogue with him. And, and, and you don't need to yell and scream, but just, you know, just I want you to, to begin to actually have a conversation with God about what your day was like. And if you're frustrated, if you're angry about something, he, he knows it. Talk to him about it. And then we'll, we'll, we'll do one other exercise, and then we'll go. Oh, Father, thank you. Those of you online, I encourage you to do the same thing. You can keep on praying if you are, but I want to encourage you to do something else, and that's to listen, to be still. Sometime earlier this year, I think it was this year, I came in on a Wednesday night, and it, was, it had been a busy day, and Gordon was teaching, and he started the service by saying, I just want everybody still, just be quiet. And it was hard to do at first, but it was exactly what I needed to do to learn to be still and just listen. God often speaks just a still, small voice. So I just want you to take some time now and just open your heart. Try to just let your mind relax. Don't go to sleep. But just listen. He's in there. He's trying to reach you. Just be still. Listen inside.
Okay, one last thing I want us to do, and these are exercises. And what they're designed to do is to help us push through our flesh and our comfort zone. We're so used to coming to church and we're, there's, we're hearing things. There's music, there's talking. Just to be still and be quiet is pushing at our flesh. And now we're going to do something different. This is what we did before. I'm going to ask you each to take some attribute of God, his faithfulness, his love, his patience, something like that, and I want you to begin to thank God for that quality of God in your life. And here's the catch. Only that quality. So when you start running out of things you can tell him, keep going. Because that's when you begin to allow your spirit to kick in and begin to show you things. So is that clear? We're going to take some attribute of God. Um, doesn't matter what it is. And then I want you to take, you can sit in your chair, you can walk around. I want you to just begin to thank him for things about that attribute in your life. And, but only that attribute. You can't go from love to faithfulness. It's got to be that one attribute. And let, let's, let's see what happens. So, so everybody pick one. If you need one, we'll give you one. <laughs> All right, let's go. And you need to do it out loud, just loud enough so you can hear it. Okay, did anybody have that experience of coming to the end of what you could know to say? I did. But if you keep going, you'll press through that. And these are exercises you can do. Just do that on your own. Just take an attribute of God or anything about God. And it doesn't have to be an attribute. And just begin to thank him for it, talk to him about it. And, and, and when you run out, your mind runs out, then your spirit's going to have to kick in. Because your spirit always wants to honor, honor God. And the other exercise is just learning to be still. My watch reminds me to be still and breathe. It's pretty bad when your watch has got to remind you to breathe. <clears throat> um, I don't listen to it anyway. So, so. I, I want to end by, I want to pray for Sunday. Sunday's Christmas. We're having a Christmas service here. And, and I just, I'm believing that we're going to have relatives come and people come that might not normally come to church. And I just, what's on my heart is for people to experience the love of God, God's love for them. So if you just join me, I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. I just trust, Lord, that you are working in all of us to, to, to draw us closer to you and to realize that in the effort to draw closer to you and the, and the obstacles that may often seem to be in the way, your amazing patience, you're so patient with us. But hopefulness, help us to see, Lord, that the effort is worth it because at the end of that effort or through that effort, there's this glorious experience of your presence that causes our hearts to burn just as those two disciples did on the road to Emmaus when they said how our hearts burned within us as he spoke to us. So, Father, we, we want to ask you for Sunday. Father, this Sunday is, is Christmas and it's a time for great celebration. 
but it's a time to, where people will come here on Sunday and they, to experience the worship together and to experience our, our fellowship together and to experience the word together. And I pray, Father, especially for those that come, that are not usually coming here, that may be coming back from COVID or maybe, maybe have never been here before, or friends and relatives, that there will be such an atmosphere here, a presence of your love, a presence of your love that was demonstrated by sending your son to this earth for us, that the presence of your love here would be so tangible that people walking in here will begin to experience something different and they will know that there's something here that's different and it's not about this place. It's to draw them closer to you. Father, we can't do that in our own effort with our music, with our words. We can't do it. It has to be the spirit of the living God upon the hearts of the people. So prepare our hearts before Sunday and all the busyness that's still left to go through in preparation for Christmas Day. Prepare our hearts for the, what's really important, what's really important on this, this, sun, this, this Christmas Sunday. What's really important is the lives and souls of people. And we thank you for it in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.